You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning. Our reading today is from the book of Genesis, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. Take our Bibles and turn to Genesis if you haven't already. We are just beginning our study in the book of Genesis, and uh, I'm really excited to keep going through it with you guys. So as we turn to Genesis, you got to remember that Israel, after God conquers Pharaoh, as they cross the Red Sea, Israel's standing on the other side, and they have been set free. They're no longer slaves. They have a whole destiny in front of them, a promised land to enter into, but at the same time, they have no identity. They have no purpose. They're standing on the other side of the Red Sea wondering who they are, And what exactly is their purpose? And look, today, we face the exact same crisis. In our individualistic society, we think that we define ourselves. What I feel is who I am. I must only be true to myself. I am who I say I am. I am what I feel. Nothing external to me defines me. I just must be true to myself. That's like the cultural uh, uh, mindset in our moment right now. But the honest truth is those are just words. We don't create our own identity at all. Our sense of self, it's established by the relationships that we have and what we do. No matter what you say, I must be true to myself. I am who I am. I define myself. No matter what you say, you and I build an identity off of our relationships that we have and what we do. That's what we look to, to have a sense of self. And that's why often, if you look around us, society is just in a tailspin of insecurity. Because as long as we look to other people to affirm us, as long as we look to what we do to give us our sense of worth, we will always feel so fragile. But the truth is the need for a profound relationship, that need for meaningful work, in and of itself, it's not wrong at all. In and of itself, that's not sinful. Actually, in and of itself, that was put there by God. God put that in us, the need for profound relationship, the need to do something meaningful with our bodies, to contribute to something greater than ourselves. The problem comes when we try to meet those needs apart from God, that's when the tailspin happens. That's when things break down. And that's what Genesis, uh, our passage, is talking about today. There's five points I want to walk through in our study of these three verses. One, you were created for a relationship. 
You were created for a relationship with God. Secondly, you were created to rule. Did you know that? That you're a ruler? That you're a king and a queen over this world? That's your destiny? God created you to rule on his behalf? Thirdly, you were created to rule from the overflow of relationship. You have to have that relationship first in order to rule properly. Then we're going to look at the problem and the solution. So five points, created for relationship, created to rule, created to rule from relationship, the problem, and the solution. So let's first talk about being created for relationship. Uh, Bob went up here. He read those verses. We are made in the image and likeness of God. But you need to understand, this is so, so important to understand the unfolding narrative of Genesis, that to be made in the image of God and after his likeness, those two things are not the same. You know, we oftentimes just collapse like our understanding of what it means to be human by saying we're made in the image of God. And that's true. We are made in the image of God. We're also made after his likeness. And those are not the same thing. Uh, In verse 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So the next thing that we read after 26 is the image of God. And it seems to be the emphasis, at least in this part. And so again, we just collapse it and understand ourselves to be in the image of God. But... The original audience, Moses' audience, these Hebrews who are looking for an identity, they would not share that same line of thinking. They would know that Moses is doing something really tremendous by saying that we are made not only in God's image, but after his likeness. And just to prove this biblically, that these two things are not the same, I want you to look at Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3, where we see that they're not the same. Uh, It says this in Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named the man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So back in Genesis 1, image was emphasized right away, but here in Genesis 5, it seems that likeness, that we're made in the likeness of God is emphasized, so they're not the same, but also further, it says here that Seth is after, made after the image of his father, Adam, and in his father's likeness. And so I don't want to get technical about the Hebrew there, the Hebrew language there, but Moses is basically saying that we're not created that when, when Adam had his son, Seth, it's not in the same way that when God created humanity. There's a difference there. And so all this to say is image and likeness are not the same thing. Even James chapter 3, verses 8 through 9 says this, But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So even here, James keeps likeness separate from image. <clears throat> They're not the same thing. So the great question then is, what does it mean that we're made after the likeness of God? To know the answer to that question, you have to understand that Moses is borrowing language from his surrounding culture, from the surrounding stories of his time. He's communicating a profound idea by borrowing that language. So what we know from ancient texts in this time, in the Mesopotamian culture, is that priests and kings were said to be in the likeness of their God. 
And the understanding of that language would be that priests and kings were sons of God. They had this special relationship with their God. They had this privileged status as people in the likeness of their God as sons of God. Priests and kings were in the likeness of God. They were sons. And then linguistically, we know from ancient texts also that likeness is used to portray comparison with the source, kings and priests, in comparison to their gods. And then really technical here, it says that we're after the likeness of God, and that word after in the original language it emphasizes that we're similar yet distinct. So to be after God's likeness means we are similar but distinct in comparison from God, but this is highly, highly relational language. This is used of a son to a father, of a priest's son, a king's son to their God father. So you can see how this would be shocking to the original reader, wouldn't you? This community of slaves who have no sense of self, they have no identity, and what they find out in their origin stories is that all of humanity is intended to be sons and daughters of God. That's what we were created for, to have that child-father relationship with our creator. It's not just for the elites, priests, and kings, but all humanity was destined, is destined to have this profound relationship with God because we are made after his likeness. And then Moses, he escalates the shock of this, about what, of what it means to be human. Go back to verse 26. It says, then God said, he's talking to somebody here. God's speaking. He turns to whoever he's talking to and says, let us together make man in our image after our likeness. So who is God's audience here? Some would say the Trinity, and that's possible. That's totally possible. It's actually probable, but it's more than that. The later biblical authors and Psalms especially interpret this verse for us, and they tell us what it means. They tell us who God is talking to, and God is talking to what is called the divine council or the heavenly host. This is a council of heavenly beings. You could even say lowercase g gods that collaborate with God. So Psalm 82 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He asks them. So here we see that God has these other heavenly beings who he collaborates with, but we also find out they're not perfect like God. Uh, they're not immortal, they're not uh, uh, perfect, they're not totally good, they show partiality. Psalm 89, 6 through 7, mentions this divine counsel again. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a, great, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones? There it is again. And awesome above all who are around him, O Lord of hosts. Who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. God is God of all, supreme amongst the heavenly hosts. Now, if this is a new concept to you, which I'm sure it is, I'll be teaching on this when we come to Genesis chapter 6. That'll be a huge focus in, in that chapter. So this is later on. We'll kick that stone down the road. But what I'll say for now is that these angels, these heavenly beings, they become corrupted as they receive worship from humanity and become what we know as demons. Genesis chapter 6. We'll get there later. But what we see here 
is that God turns to this audience, this heavenly host, and says, let's make man after our likeness for relationship, for sonship relationship with us. So then what we can say is that humanity is created to have relationship with the divine. We are purposed for spiritual life, connection to heaven, connection to heaven's atmosphere. So humanity, not just the elites like priests, not just the elites like kings, but all humanity is meant for special relationship with God, a father-child relationship with our creator. We are meant for continued access to heaven and all of its glory. We're created for relationship after his likeness. But we're also created to rule because we're made in his image. Verse 26 says, let us make man in our image. Now the word image uh, is salem. And again, Moses is borrowing a word from his surrounding culture to communicate something really profound. Image was used to refer to statues that were thought to be infused with the presence of a divine. It is also used of kings who would... uh, forward the boundaries of their kingdom, expand their territories. And what was understood in that time is when a king would expand his territories, it's as if the God that he served was was having his presence mediated through that king. So when a kingdom or king would take a new land, they would set up a statue of that God, or they'd set up a statue of that king, and the image there of that statue or of that king meant that this was the God's terrain now and that the God's presence was mediated there. So image, that remain the image of God means that humanity is meant to be the exact representative of God. It's as if the God was right there if his image was there. In fact, uh, to get more technical again about the linguistics here, the word in his image, in his image, it emphasizes proximity, Meaning, if you were to look at the image of God, it would be as if you were looking at God himself. That's how close we are made in his image. If you were looking at someone or something in the image of a God, you'd have to do a double take because you would mistake that image for that God. That's what this word means. Exact representation. So now we see what Moses' message is here to his audience. Humans were purposed to relay to the world exactly who God is through their activity in and over creation. We, humanity, is created to be God's exact representative. And this is why Jesus, who only does it perfectly, is called the image of the invisible God. He is exactly the representative of the unseen God. So again, think about just how jaw-dropping this idea would be to this community of people who have no sense of purpose. Humanity, all of humanity, not just kings, not just these decadent idols, all humanity is precisely purposed to be God's representative on earth. And so to to be in the image of God means that you are royal, that we are kings and queens over God's creation. It's a status reserved only for kings in this time, but all humanity is given this, this platform now. So what do kings do, though, for kings and queens over God's creation? We need to understand this. What do kings do and queens do? They rule. They rule 
And we see this in verse 26. Keep going, keep reading. God says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So humanity is created to rule, to exercise dominion. But since we're in God's image, Elohim's image, not these other uh, false gods, pagan gods, but God's image, we are supposed to rule as God would rule, right? Because we're his representatives, or mirroring him, mirroring him to all creation. So how does God rule? If you hear last week, you know that from the creation account, God rules with creativity. God rules with kindness. God rules in beauty, truth, and goodness. As God rules over the chaos of matter and over the, the, the formless world, over the chaos of the deep, he, he takes all of that, rules over it, and refashions it in creativity, in kindness, in perfection. That's how God rules, and that's what humanity is supposed to rule like, ruling like God rules. So as humanity walks on the earth and cares for the created order, they do so with creativity, with happiness, in beauty, in truthfulness, in goodness, in kindness. We are benevolent kings and queens like God is the benevolent king. We're made in his image. Now think about this. Why did God put us in bodies? Hands, feet, vocal cords to speak with imaginations in our being. Why did God create us in these bodies with these faculties and abilities? Why didn't he just create us as spirits, right? Just roaming the earth. Why did he give us these bodies? It's so that we could have the unique ability as his image bearers to expertly and skillfully do what God did when he created. We move outward in self-expression and use our bodies to take the raw material and harnessed potential of the world and bring to reality what is in our minds for the good of others. That's what we can do as people who are made in his image. And when we do this, we show creation, the world, one another, what God is like. So, we're made for divine relationship. We are made to rule these instincts, they're embedded within each and every single one of us. Now that explains quite a bit, doesn't it? Why we want profound relationship, why we want to do something that matters with our lives and our bodies and our vocations, right? This explains quite a bit. It's why we long for community. It's why we long for friendship. It's why we long for marriage. It's why we have this inkling for the transcendent. It's why our careers matters to, matters to us so much. We want to do something that makes us come alive while at the same time making a contribution to the world. These are good longings. They're put there by our creator because we are meant for relationship and meant to rule. But we need to get this right. We need to see how the story unfolds, the narrative unfolds. Because if you read Genesis with an awareness now of the fact that we're made after his likeness and in his image, you'll see that there is now a clear sequence. You have to do one first for the next one to take place properly, right? 
So our divine likeness, this, relate, this need for relationship with God, it must first be realized so we can then turn around and properly realize the divine image within us and express who God is to the world. So in other words, you and I are created to rule from the overflow of relationship with God. That's what we're going to see next. Go to verse 28. We see this play out right away. It says, Moses writes, and God blessed them. And then God spoke to them, Adam and Eve. He says to them something, and we'll get there in just a second. But first God blessed them and God speaks to them. So for God to bless humanity, Adam and Eve, this is covenantal language. This is used in the context of covenant. It means that he then favors humanity, that he enters into relationship with humanity. I mean, think about when God elects Abraham and says, I will bless you, Abraham. Or think about in Psalm 1 when it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. That's the uh, blessed man. These passages talk about someone who's in profound, covenantal, close relationship with God. That's what it means to be blessed. And God blessed them, which means he chose to enter into profound relationship with Adam and Eve. Then he speaks to them. Now listen, God created animals from the dust of the ground just like he did with humanity, but God did not speak to them. Only God speaks to humanity because humanity has been created to have dynamic interaction with God. He speaks to them as he gives them their commission to rule. And that's what he does next. He says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bird, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So if being made in the image of God means that Adam and Eve are mediating his presence wherever they went as his exact representatives, then what God has in mind is that from the overflow of relationship with him, then go and multiply image bearers, move outward into the world, extending God's creative, happy, kind authority across the globe. And then they would do it in a manner that reflects who God is. So you see this, this sequence already. God blesses, speaks, commissions to go be like him as they rule over creation. That's the sequence that we see all throughout the narrative. It's crucial, it's crucial that they were in relationship with God and then went forth to rule. Because why? They need to know the creator they're representing. If God is their father and they are his children who ought to represent him in their ruling, then they need to fellowship with God so they can represent through ruling. So this is the sequence. First, the divine likeness within us is realized so that the divine image within us, within us can be realized. In this sequence, it plays out throughout the narrative. Relationship then rule. Relationship, then rule. Favor with God, then movement outward on his behalf. It's all throughout the narrative. I want to show you this, actually, in chapter 2. Go there with me. Chapter 2, verse 5. 
I want to highlight man's creation, and then I want to highlight the creation of the Garden of Eden. And it just shows the sequence of how we're favored by God so that we can be moved outward as we're commissioned by him. Genesis 2, 5 through 7, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, like I said before, animals, creatures were created from the dust of the ground in chapter one. We see that already. But here at man's creation, it's it's more of a formation. In the Hebrew especially, and if you just read the two comparisons between the creation of the animals and creation of mankind, you can see that there's this deliberation, this carefulness, this, it's gradual, this creation of man. is it? God takes his time as he makes man. So we see the favor, the love, the attention that God already has for him. Then verses 8 through 9. And the Lord God, now I just want you to notice this here, what God does as a gift towards humanity, how there's this privileged relationship that God has for humanity. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So Adam and Eve, they didn't plant the garden. They didn't cultivate the ground. It was a gift to them. He gives them this garden in this place called Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he brings the man into this this home he's made for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, don't just roll over that quickly with your eyes. God causes it to spring up from the ground. It's not just boring. It's not just lifeless creation. It's pleasing to the eye and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, which would give Adam immortality and Eve immortality, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there as well. So you see, just from these few verses, that God has a special relationship with humanity. Everything he's done, it's a complete gift to him which broadcasts how he loves humanity. And since Adam is in the image and after the likeness of God, he, okay, just listen to this, he would be understood, Adam would be understood to be a priest king, right? Priests and kings were talked about in this way. Now Adam is talked about in this way. He's a priest king. So then this garden abode would be understood to be this royal temple that Adam lives in. It's a garden sanctuary designed for delight and for worship. So then Adam, he experiences profound relationship with God in this incredible garden sanctuary that's been gifted to him. And it's from a place of rest and from a place of abundance that he then moves outward and extends the boundaries of the garden into the world. He is first in blessed relationship with God. Then he exercises dominion outward. 
These are only just a few things that we see in the text. This, this back and forth between relationship, then rule, relationship, then rule, blessing, then moving outward. God sends rain to help Adam in his work. God creates animals, then brings them to Adam, and he names them. God creates woman from Adam, then brings them to Adam for him to care for. So see this back and forth over and over of God's special favor and love for Adam, then Adam moving outward and exercising dominion over creation So God arranges the situation so that the divine likeness, this need for profound relationship that's embedded within Adam and embedded within each one of us is first realized. So then he can properly exercise dominion and realize his divine image. Now here's what's interesting. Okay, this back and forth we see, this destiny that each one of us are purposed for. We need to see that in the text, when the divine likeness and the divine image are realized, something incredible happens. Here's what it means to be human. There's a forging that takes place between heaven and earth. Remember that man was meant for interaction with heaven? Remember that? He's meant for a deep spiritual life with God, then to mediate the presence of God on earth through his activity. And if he does this, what's going to happen is mankind, Adam and Eve, becomes a tether between heaven and earth. We mediate heaven to earth. One scholar says this, as servant king and son of God, mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of a covenantal relationship with God on the one hand and the earth on the other. Mankind is supposed to be a tether between heaven and earth. And this is why Genesis 2-4 is worth noting. Go there with me and read. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, you might be just tempted to skip over this verse, but that but what should catch, catch your attention here is that this is a genealogy. If you've ever read the Bible a lot and you see these lists of genealogies, it's, you know, this father begets this son who begets this person who begets. Genealogies are human. They recount human lineage, but here this genealogy is, is about heaven and earth. Like a human formula that recounts lineage is used to talk about creation of heaven and earth. And when you read Genesis, uh, uh, when you read what, what Moses is writing before and after, it begins to make sense why he does this. What scholars say is that Moses is purposefully trying to show us something in a very subtle way. Since heaven and earth fill the slot where a name would be expected to appear. And just before this is the story of the world's creation and how mankind is the extension of the divine on earth. And then in chapter two, he transitions to mankind's creation. This genealogy that's smack dab in the middle of these two things, these two accounts, serves as a connection between the two. We should conclude that humans in the divine image and likeness are a product of heaven placed on earth and then serve as a tether between heaven and earth. And this is exactly what unfolds. Adam fellowships with God in this garden sanctuary and mediates heaven to earth as he works outward. So mankind, we're created 
to tether heaven and earth together. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Or why Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So now go outward and exercise dominion and be fruitful and make disciples. The human destiny then is to have such a rich relationship with God that it spills over into everything that we do as we move outward and rule on his behalf in an attempt to bring heaven on earth. You were created exactly for this. Rich relationship, ruling on God's behalf, ushering heaven into earth wherever you go. Each one of us are created after the divine likeness and in the image of God. And we have this insatiable thirst for profound relationship and a drive for meaningful activity, don't we? So why doesn't it feel like heaven's invading earth? (laughs) Through us, through me. It's because we aren't imaging God as we're exercising dominion. Well, why aren't we imaging God as we should? It's because we are not in profound relationship with him. We're not in profound fellowship with him. It's quite the opposite, actually. We've been alienated from him due to our sin and due to our disobedience. And so the purpose that we were created for is, is, is we are frustrated, living in angst, because we, these things that have been embedded within us are not quite ever fully realized because of sin. Nothing works. Everything is broken because of sin. And that's what we see in the unfolding narrative. I'm not going to go and preach Genesis 3. That's for later. But one detail I want to point out to you is that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go to Genesis 2.9 and you see it again. The, knowledge, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we all know the story, what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they eat of this tree, of the fruit of this tree, and they're exiled as a consequence. They're literally alienated and separated from God. They're no longer close to him. They're no longer in this profound relationship with him anymore. But when they eat the fruit, when that occurs, it's not just some magic fruit. You know, it's like not, that's not what's happening in this, uh, in this situation. What's happening is they're transgressing a law. They're transgressing a command. The eating of the fruit was a litmus test for their obedient trust in God. When you read uh, the rest of the Old Testament and you see these words good and evil next to each other, and we see it a ton of different times throughout the Old Testament, most of the time it's in this judicial setting where somebody has to decide between two alternatives of a yes or a no, or of a good or an evil, of a right and a wrong in a judicial setting. And so what we kind of like read back into Genesis from the rest of the Bible is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was this place where Adam and Eve would go to consult God, hear his wisdom on any matter, receive his instruction, receive his guidance and his will, and then go as they exercise dominion, they would go and, and, and obey it. They would trust God's spoken word and then enact it through their bodies as they exercise dominion. So when they take of the fruit of the tree and eat it and transgress, they break trust with God. You know, we can call sin many things. It's called many things, lawlessness, transgression, immorality. But in this narrative, 
sin, what sin is, is its refusal to trust God. Ignatius of Loyola, he defines sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. And that's what occurs in the garden with Adam and Eve. They fail to trust that what God's will for their lives is, is intended only for their deepest happiness. Instead, they trust their own wisdom and they transgress and they're exiled and separated from God, no longer able to realize the divine likeness within them. And so now, because, you know, each one of us here are made in the image of God, we can still do great things. I mean, mankind, humanity is capable of incredible things, like New York City, pretty impressive. We can do incredible things. But now that we're cut off from God's presence and alienated from Him, have broken trust with Him, now we treat our work as a replacement for God instead of an overflow of our relationship with Him. And so what happens? Our work, it crushes us. Our work, it deforms us. It dehumanizes us. We can't stop working. We step on others. We irresponsibly abuse resources. Or we just run and hide from work altogether. Either way, what happens because of sin is through our activity, our dominion, our ruling, our work, we commit injustice against one another and sin against God and others. And so instead of bringing heaven on earth as we were intended to do, we create hell on earth because we're separated from God. And we make good things ultimate things. We make people into idols and work into God. And ultimately, then, we'll never be happy. We'll always be frustrated because we're without relationship with God underneath our ruling. So we stand before God alienated and guilty and frustrated as humans, never quite able to realize what's within our hearts. So how can things be made right? Is it possible for us to step back into our human destiny and be everything that God wants us to be, has created us to be? Is it possible for us to have the divine image and likeness realized within us? Well, only and only if we're reconciled to God. Only if the alienation that Adam and Eve experienced is reversed and we move back towards God's presence, back into relationship with him. But there has to be reconciliation. What we need is a new champion who will reverse Adam's failure, who will lead us back into God's presence. We need a new Adam who will lead us back to God. But in order for us to enter God's presence, there has to be atonement because God's justice against sin, it has to be vindicated. So how will a new Adam lead us back and at the same time, God be vindicated and without compromise? Only if that new Adam absorbs the wrath of God himself, just like the lamb would on the day of atonement, so that our sin can be forgiven and forgotten, and we can have entrance back into close, profound relationship with God. And the good news is this, that the new Adam, he does arrive, but he's not like the former Adam who's created from the dust of the ground. He comes from heaven above to earth. He truly is the tether between heaven and earth. He truly is the son of God and truly images God to the world and everything that he does. And it is because Jesus is perfect 
that the sacrifice of his life in our place is acceptable to God. And now we will never, ever face alienation ever again, no matter what, because we have been ransomed by a perfect new Adam. And so now if you've trusted Christ and you're united to him, guess what? You're back in relationship with God and now you can move outward and exercise dominion in a way that all at once shows the world who God is and at the same time makes us come alive. We can fulfill our created purpose, relationship with God and ruling on his behalf. And that's what we're created for, ruling and relationship. So that's the theology of what it means to be human. We are created for relationship, created for ruling. Ruling has to overflow from relationship. There's a problem, and God, by his grace, has provided a solution. I'm going to dig into um, the practicality of this, how this actually plays out in our day-to-day lives in a future sermon. But I have just a few concluding applications that I want to leave you with. Because Christianity alone has a robust doctrine of what it means to be human and what it means to work. And so I want to see, I just want to think through this together, how this should play out, our belief in the fact that we're made after God's likeness and in his image. And so the first reason why this matters is this is why racism, sexism, ageism, Prejudice of any form, mocking someone else, cutting someone else down, wounding somebody else verbally is wrong. It's a tragedy because each person has capacity to know God because they're made after his likeness. And when we discourage somebody, we're hindering someone from realizing that potential that's been embedded within them. And each person has a capacity to make incredible and unique contributions to the world. And when we disregard people or neglect people or cut other people down, we're not letting the image of God materialize as it should. What a tragedy. Because the more people that image God, the more of God we will see because the more of him will be displayed. And so in the same vein, Humans, oh my goodness, each one of you here, we have so much harnessed potential, each one of us. And there's only one of you. There's only one of you who's made in the image of God the way you are. And a person who gets the gospel that I am utterly sinful beyond belief, but loved more than I can imagine a person who gets that would never want to be somebody else. They're totally comfortable in their own skin. If you believe the gospel, you would accept that all you are, you would accept all that you are because it is through your unique personhood that you image God to the world. It is through your personality, your family of origin, your culture, your story. It's through all of those unique things that you make a unique contribution to the world. And so because we're made after the likeness of God and in his image, we believe that each and every human being is unique in and of themselves. Here's something else we need to think about because of all this. 
You are not what you do, but what you do does matter. You are not what you do. It doesn't define you, but what you do does matter. So God cares about your work quite a bit. It's a part of what it means to be human. We tend to think there are certain categories that are Christian and some that are not. But here's the truth. All of life is all for Jesus. All of life is all for Jesus. Your work included. Your work is underneath his lordship. So one author says, work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Think about that. Work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. It's fun to rule when the work you are passionate about intersects with need. There's nothing like doing the thing that you were built to do. It's like Chariots of Fire, the old movie. Eric Liddell says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Each and every one of us have that thing we're called to and built for, that when we exercise and do and embody to meet needs and contribute all around us, it makes us come alive, we blossom. So we ought to move out into the world and make contributions with our unique giftings. So when you read Jeremiah 29, these uh, Israelites who are exiled in Babylon... They're not home. They're strangers and exiles. God tells them through the prophet Jeremiah, plant gardens, raise families, seek your welfare, because in your welfare, the city will find its welfare. What's he saying there? This is not your home. You're exiles and sojourners, but go to work and get to work and seek your prosperity. Do everything you can, and the city is going to flourish because of it. That's our calling as Christians, to go into the world and make unique contributions. Your work matters, and as Christians, our work should be the greatest contributions in every domain. And when I say great contributions, I don't mean Christian literature or Christian music or Christian film, or Christian t-shirts, or Christian engineering, or whatever. C.S. Lewis says we don't need more Christian literature. We need more Christians writing better literature. Martin Luther says the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Christian is a great noun. It's a really bad adjective. There's no sacred, secular divide. So don't buy the lie that Christians, we retreat into our cultural corner and watch as the world burns and we feel sorry for ourselves that we're in the minority and powerless. That comes from this fearful mindset that is not of God. Christians should be in every corridor of society drawing out the raw potential of something and making great great contributions to the world around them. Third, Two more applications. Third, if you're reconciled to God and you are a Christian, you should be the greatest worker. You should be an excellent worker. You should be doing excellent things. Christians have always been on the frontier of science and medicine and art and culture, always throughout history. And now why is that? Why have Christians been the ones to to push the boundaries of what we know outward? Push the boundaries of what we can do outward. Why is that? Because we, and we alone, have a robust theology of work and exercising dominion over the created order with responsibility and creativity. 
And so you should strive for excellence because excellence has the greatest potential to bless others. If you're a Christian here, you should have aspiration. You should desire to push God's creative and kind authority deeper into every sector. But also, at the same time, some of us aren't going to be doctors. We're definitely not artistic. Some of us aren't researchers. But here's what's interesting. Paul, in the New Testament, he tells the church in Thessalonica to work with your own hands and live a quiet life. To work with your own hands and live a quiet life. That's manual labor. That's mothering. That's maybe a job that you don't love. Understand that the Bible is the first ancient document to give meaning to everyday tough work. That which was reserved for slaves and people on the fringe, it mattered to God because each one of us are created to work on his behalf. All of work is redeemed. So the application for some of you here is to press on, have aspiration. For some of you, it's to be content and work hard in the place God has put you because your work matters nonetheless. For some of you, you need to get a job. (laughs) For some of you, you need to be more ambitious because Christians of all people should be driven to meaningful work. And lastly, I'll say this. You need to be sure that you get your divine likeness realized first. That that profound relationship with God you are destined for, that you realize that, fulfill that first before you move out into the world. Martin Luther, again, he says, I'm so busy today that I need to spend an extra hour in prayer this morning. Sometimes, guys, I wake up thinking, I'm so busy, I need Jesus. Because our work matters to God, but even more, your walk with him matters. So if you want to exercise dominion over creation instead of being dominated by it, you must be sure that you are first secure in Christ. Otherwise, you'll be expecting your work to be only what God can be for you. You'll become a workaholic, and then you need to produce to matter, and then you need to take shortcuts and compromise to keep producing, and then you might fall in love with money, and so on and so forth. But if you make time with Jesus, priority number one in your life, you will find that the rest takes care of itself because all that you begin to do just simply becomes an overflow of your love for him. And so, we're created for relationship. We're created for ruling. This ruling must be an overflow of our relationship with God. And because of Christ, we are now reconciled back to the presence of God and we can have rich relationship with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for atoning for our sin and bringing us back to the presence of our Father. And Lord, we just simply ask that you'd help us to step into our purpose, to be sons and daughters of our Father, the Creator, to walk with Him and know Him and have a love relationship with Him so that then we can 
step out into each one of our callings and represent you, Father, in all that we do, your grace and your kindness and your creativity. God, you've called us to great things, to great relationship and to rule as kings and queens. And so, God, by your grace, we ask that you'd help us to do this for your glory and for the world's good. In your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.